This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with public-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Sandy Goldberg. Sandy is professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. He specializes in epistemology and the philosophy of language, but he has particular interest in the social aspects of knowing and speaking. These foci converge in his ongoing work on testimony. Now, Sandy has written lots of articles and several books, including 2010's Relying on Others, and more recently, his 2015 book titled Assertion. He has a forthcoming book that's titled To the Best of Our Knowledge. Oxford University Press has published all three. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Bob. Great to be with you. Well, great to be with you. Thank you for joining me on the Why We Argue podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So I thought we might begin um, with the big picture, if that's okay. Um, now, as many, but not all of our listeners will know, epistemology uh, is an area of philosophy that is the theory of knowledge. Um, and in its traditional forms, uh, epistemology is concerned with um, topics ranging from, for example, uh, the distinction between knowing something and being a lucky guesser, um, the difference between uh, having a true belief and having a belief that's well-warranted or well-justified. Um, and epistemologists are also, in their traditional mode at least, um, focused on you know, the analysis of various core concepts like evidence and reasons. Um, now, you do quite a bit of work in epistemology in this traditional mode, but you're also concerned um, with topics that are now organized under the rubric social epistemology. Can you give us a very brief description of what the social epistemologist is concerned with? Sure. If uh, you think back to one of the more influential people in early modern European philosophy, Descartes, uh, you think back to Descartes' meditations when he was sitting by himself trying to rationally reconstruct all that he took himself to know. That was a very individual task or project that he set for himself. Um, in a number of traditions, and most recently uh, in the 20th century, uh, traditions in so-called Anglo-American philosophy in uh, epistemology have recognized that when it comes to knowledge, um, knowledge is, is importantly social in many of its dimensions, in particular with respect to the acquisition, storage, transmission, and evaluation of knowledge that's often a social phenomenon. And so social epistemology approaches these matters from a, a social perspective, looking into what, what are these, these dimensions? How do they affect the nature of knowledge? How do they affect its storage, its evaluation, and so forth? 
Great. And does that um, does that sort of uh, broadening of the of the the scope um, to include the social um, does that also enable the epistemologist to um, broaden his topic uh, in a further way? In that um, once once you see all of the social dimensions of knowledge and the project of gathering it and disseminating it, that um, uh, there there are more clearly um, normative questions that come into view. Sure, I think I think normative questions probably come into view uh, in both ways. Whether you do epistemology from a Cartesian perspective uh, or from a social perspective, but you're quite right. Once you take a social perspective, there are a whole bunch of questions that we can ask about uh, ourselves. What what uh, standards of evaluation should we use as we assess uh, information that we get from other people? What standards of evaluation should we impose on ourselves as we try to give information to other people? Um, these are these are certainly questions that have arisen. I think that even Descartes would have uh, raised these questions, but I think they acquire a slightly different character once we begin to take seriously that the vast majority of our knowledge actually does come by or through reliance on other other subjects. Right. And so I guess that one of the um, one of the questions that comes maybe even more fully into view with the social picture is um, normative questions about how people evaluate information, that is, things that are presented to them um, uh, as candidates for um, information in the epistemically uh, creditable sense. Uh, that is that um, once you take the social perspective, some of the epistemologist questions become questions about how epistemic uh, creatures evaluate um, things that are presented to them as things that they might themselves adopt as beliefs. Right. So, I mean, it's a nice way to put it. Imagine, so Descartes thought, uh, or this is probably not exactly what Descartes thought, but but close enough. Descartes thought that if he was going to believe something, that he had to have a certain kind of assurance that he could appreciate from his perspective. And what this meant was that if he got information from other people, he had to ascertain for himself that it was reliable information. If you think about it, that can be a bit of a challenge because often we're relying on others in precisely those situations where we're not really in a position to know what is trustworthy and what is not trustworthy. Now, of course, we can evaluate not just the, the, the likelihood that the information is true, but we can also evaluate the likelihood that that person would tell us the truth. Uh, that's something that you can do as an individual. But my, my sense is that once we appreciate how much information comes from other people, I think we will appreciate that the task of deciding what to believe may itself be socially distributed. So here's what I mean by that very briefly. Um, you might think that when it comes to decide what I should believe, I have to rely on other people to help me figure out um, what are the good things to believe, that it's not a task that I do for myself once and for all, but in fact, I rely on others in precisely a situation where I'm trying to figure out whether I ought to be relying on others. Some people uh, look at this and they will get a sense of vertigo. Mm -hmm. Other people look at this and will say, hey, this is an interesting question. How do we manage to rely on the very thing whose, um, whose, whose status it may be in question for us? How does that even make sense? And of course, that's, making sense of this is, is one of the tasks of social epistemology. Well, excellent. That, that that I think gives gives a very nice uh, uh, picture of not only the the ways in which these different branches um, 
and maybe not always competing, but sometimes competing branches of epistemology uh, distinguished. But um, why don't we tighten the focus a little bit and, and, and talk more um, uh, or turn to your work on testimony. So um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, it, it looks like testimony is like a good site for thinking about um, these social aspects of knowledge um, because um, – uh, what we mean by testimony here is not legal testimony only, but we just mean generally the phenomena associated with, you know, spreading knowledge or sharing knowledge by way of reporting to others things that we know or coming to know something by way of somebody else's report that we judge to be um, trustworthy or epistemically reliable. So can you um, can you tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts about testimony? Sure. So. You, you put it nicely before when you asked, uh, how do we manage to know what to trust, what information to trust? Right. So here's a general, if you like, a general framework for thinking about these things. I think in general, the uh, a person who is on the receiving end of information has at least three sources of, if you like, background information that they can use as they try to figure out whether to accept this new piece of information. The first is... Uh, you understand the, the what the information itself, you understand that information, and you may have, in some cases, you may have background information that lets you assess the the, the testimony for its, its likely truth. So, for example, if you're a baseball fan, as I am, and somebody says to you, uh, the Yankees lost last night 57 to 6, you may well know enough about baseball to know it's highly unlikely that any team ever scores 57 runs in a game. Right. And that is a way you, that's background information that you can use to assess whether to accept a piece of information. And often we have uh, enough background information to get some sense of the plausibility of what we're being told often, but not always. And in the really interesting cases, cases, for example, where you're relying on an expert or an alleged expert in a domain where you don't have a lot of information, you can't really rely on your on your background information about the the content that you're you're being presented with. But that doesn't mean that you're out of luck, because in addition to evaluating the, 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 the information itself for its plausibility, we can also evaluate the, the source or the, the speaker or the writer. Um, sometimes we may not have any idea about the domain in which she's speaking, but we may know that she's an expert in that domain. And that may be enough to get us to believe her, even though we have no independent way to check to see whether or not what she's saying is correct. Sometimes we have a track record on the person who's telling us something. We may know, for example, that a friend is highly reliable. And so although we don't know that we, we weren't there with her when she when she experienced whatever it is that she's telling us about, we rely on her reliability or her trustworthiness. And so come to accept what she's what she said. And then there's a third source of information that I think we use when we assess testimony, and that is what I call general context. Uh, I may not know the content. I may not know the, the area uh, very well of the information. I may not know who the speaker is, but I, know, I do know that this is a context, uh, say it's an academic context in which people are uh, you can only get into this into this room if you yourself are an academic. And that gives me some confidence that whatever I hear in this room is, is if you like, um, somewhat, at least somewhat plausible. Or I may not know who the writer is, but I know that she's a writer for the New York Times uh, or the Wall Street Journal. And I may think very highly of those two newspapers. And so I may accept what she says because she's a writer for the, for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. So we're not, we're not without individual resources when it comes to assessing uh, information that comes at us. The interesting cases are when the information that we have is is really 
uh, minimal. And those are the really interesting cases. Right. So let me, I was intrigued by, um, uh, uh, I mean, by all of what you said. But one thing that uh, the third category, uh, the, the third bit of information that um, that you were describing, uh, one thought I had about that is um, so. Well, let me just assert something, and if you don't agree with this, and we we could talk about it. Um, so it looks as if uh, our world is awash with testimony uh, in ways that it, it it wasn't thirty years ago. Does that seem right to you? I would say we have more. Yes, we have okay. more access to information for sure. Okay, great. Um, uh, and um, some of that, well, a lot of that communication, a lot of that sharing of um, uh, claims and assertions um, uh, that goes on, especially online, but also uh, in social media uh, more broadly, um, is uh, um, is of a political nature, people trying to share information about politicians and policies and what's in a bill and and um, uh, who's voted for what and and the rest. Um, a lot of the testimony, uh, a lot of those commun- a lot of that communication though is about um, evaluating, often negatively evaluating what are generally regarded as, reliable sources of information. So when you said, you know, we know that a journalist writes for the New York Times and that's a good signal of her, uh, of her reliability. Um, that seems to be uh, something that's um, often deliberately under attack. That I, I kind think, of inference. Yeah, I think you're, unfortunately, you're absolutely right here. There was just a, uh, a lovely conference that I was participating in here at the University of Pennsylvania on fake news. And one of the real concerns that we were discussing there was precisely this, that the attack on certain um, uh, traditionally recognized uh, authorities, such as, uh, you know, mainstream media, but also um, science and the, the authority of science. Right. Uh, I should say that it, it it is a very, very disturbing thing, um, wh- wh- whereas mainstream media have always been, at least in this country, they've always been in the business of making money, and that's always been grounds for some skepticism, uh, I think some reasonable skepticism. At the same time, uh, it's not as if you or I could go out and find out for ourselves what's going on, for example, in Zimbabwe these days or what's going on in Russia these days. So we're going to have to rely on some um, extended sources of information. And to have the the sources like like the Times or or the Journal or other what, what I regard as the reputable sources to have them called into question leads me to worry deeply about where folks who aren't relying on them are getting their information because for whatever concerns you have about about sources like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, if you are going to form beliefs about uh, things that you're not observing, for example, in Zimbabwe or in Russia, you're going to have to get your news from from somewhere. And my sense is that uh, I would be deeply surprised if your average U.S. citizen who isn't particularly knowledgeable about Zimbabwe or Russia knows enough to know which information sources to get information from. Right. And so that creates all kinds of, yeah, that, that's the, that's the thin edge of a, of a, of a very disturbing wedge where, um, you can, um, very easily access sources that, um, are very happy to tell you what the reliable sources are about Russia or Zimbabwe. And then other sources that are very happy to tell you that those first sources are also reliable, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, th- th- this is the situation. This is the problem that we're facing. That's right. 
Good. Well, I mean, not good. Awful. But <laughs> um, so let's sort of look at another dimension to this, if that's OK. Um, so there's a lot of online communication. And some of the uh, concerns that uh, some of the work you've been doing recently has been concerned with um, the extent to which online communication is anonymized. Um, and so um, just as you were saying that part of what we can do when we're assessing testimony is, you know, f find out the track record, look at the source, figure out if the person is credentialed in particular ways so that such that she's an expert and therefore uh, should be presumed to be reliable. I guess a lot of that story gets very complicated um, once we're looking at um, modes of communication where anonymity is um, not only possible, but the norm. Right. Uh, so I've been worrying, worrying or thinking about uh, anonymous information sharing for uh, probably half a decade now. So it's not not the longest time, but it, but it's I've been thinking about it for a while. My initial thought was one of um, skepticism. That is, under conditions when you don't know who the speaker is and often have only minimal information about the context in which the information is being produced, you are really at a um, you're at a, a major disadvantage in assessing how reliable the information is. And this can be a major problem. But then I, I realized, and this is actually under the influence of many, uh, many other philosophers who, who pointed out to me that anonymity should be seen from at least two perspectives. Uh, it should be seen from the perspective, not just of the hearer, but also of the speaker. And there are contexts under which you will not get information unless you allow a source to be anonymous. And of course, in these days of, of Harvey Weinstein, it's not hard to appreciate why that is. Sure. People who have very, very um, uh, influential positions or authorities may well, often have a vested interest in making sure that certain information doesn't get out. And so they will punish people who, who try to bring that information to light. Harvey Weinstein being a superb example of this, and uh, if you like an, an evil example of this. Right. So anonymity actually has two faces. It does create problems, um, or at least it can potentially create problems for a hearer in recognizing when, when he or she should, should endorse information that's coming through. But it also can play a positive role in, in getting information to come out that otherwise might not get out. Right. Um, and I guess it one of the complications then of you're quite right that it's got these two faces and uh, all kinds of cases in which um, testifying is very risky for the, for the would be testifier and anonymity helps to manage the risk. Um, but um, for the people receiving the testimony, then things get very complicated, right? They get complicated. You're absolutely right. And it's, I should say, not just from the perspective of an interest in, in knowledge. Um, my first thought and the, the first thing that I ever, I ever published on this the analogy that I was using was between anonymous information and what, at least when I was growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, I used to call bathroom wall graffiti. <laughs> bathroom wall graffiti was among the most um, uh, outrageous kind of allegations that you can find. And it dawned on me uh, at the time, <laughs> and, and it certainly continues to dawn on me as I, I think about this from a, a, a more refined philosophical perspective, shall we say, it, it dawned on me that Anonymity allows the speaker to, to say things that he or she might not might not say in public because um, because of the, the element that he or she would be ashamed to say so. Uh, and that actually that that shaming is not always a negative thing. I mean, when you think about bathroom wall graffiti, it seems to me that some of those things were shameful and should not have been said. And it would have been better for people to have felt the sense of shame and, and not say them. And certainly I don't think I'm telling 
anyone something that you don't know when I tell you that a lot of anonymized commentary on blogs and on other uh, websites are outrageously shameful and disgusting and despicable. And this is another another one of the the real problems that we confront when we look at uh, anonymous information coming through through um, if you like websites. Right. So let me just uh, say something I'm, I know you will agree with. Um, Jersey is a very philosophical place (laughs) as a fellow native, um, uh, all kinds of occasions for, uh, philosophical thinking by just living, uh, in that space. Um, but, um, so I guess one of the one of the concerns, though, is um, a kind of um, a kind of hooliganism uh, that can occur uh, when particularly we might think maybe on the blogs where um, you've got everyone uh, uh, communicating under some kind of either pseudonym or uh, um, anonymized in some way. And uh, it looks like that is a, a context in which rumors and uh, uh, hyperbolic, you know, crazily exaggerated, terrible uh, uh, allegations, uh, all kinds of things can happen in those contexts. What's a person who's trying to figure out what's what? Uh, what can one do? That, that's a great question. Um, so I have only a couple of thoughts here, uh, thoughts that, that I've, I've run, but I've run by other people before and and I'm not entirely sure how confident I am in them. But if you're confronted just with anonymous information on uh, a website and you don't know, you don't know who wrote it, you clearly don't know who wrote it. You don't know the context under which it was produced. You, especially if you don't have a lot of background information on the topic, you're going to be very, very much at a loss as to, as to what to do. And there may not be much that, that I can suggest, uh, that would enable us to figure out, um, uh, what, what to do or what to believe. Um, one of the things that's really, um, difficult to think about these days are anonymous allegations, for example, of sexual harassment. Uh, I think it's, it's my sense. And I, I suspect it'll be the sense of many of, of your listeners that for many, many years, the benefit of the doubt went to the would be, um, uh, attackers or harassers. And those norms, I think right now we're in the process of rene- renegotiating those norms or those, those, the things that we expect of one another. I think that's actually a good thing because I do think, uh, for too long, too many people who were the victims of sexual harassment, sexual assault and, and, and rape were not believed. And I, I think the time has come for us to, to change the ways in which we receive information of that kind, even when it is uh, anonymous. At the same time, I think we now confront a, a very, very big information transmission problem, if I can call it that, somewhat pompous sounding, I apologize. And that is, it, can we think of regimes wherein we can um, we can somehow have information filtered so that while it remains anonymous – Nevertheless, there's enough filtering going on so that even though it's anonymous, the fact that it is anonymous need not send a signal that it's not to be believed. And there are a variety of different ways that that people can uh, that we that we might have these so-called regimes of uh, of filtering information. You can imagine a website in which there is uh, a webmaster who this is obviously inefficient, but who um, has a sense of who is sending information in and she is knowledgeable about what what is uh, reliable and what is not and so while she allows the people to post anonymously um she herself is the is the filter 
that's that's one way to uh, to, to 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 try to do this. Another is if you take a look, for example, at the New York Times. One thing that it's done recently in its um, uh, its comments, they're not anonymous. I don't know whether or not they verify the names, but it's not anonymous. What they have decided to do is simply to highlight the really best of the comments that are on a uh, on their website by giving stars to those people, thereby attracting more attention to those people, thereby trying to to change, if you like, the uh, the the motivations that people have to contribute. So that's another possible way we can have of trying to change the quality of information that that gets published, even if it's published under uh, anonymous uh, under conditions of anonymity. Excellent. So you've been very generous with your time. I, I want to just press one one philosopher's question, maybe one one question simply for uh, 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 the the philosophers uh, in the audience. Um, so the way testimony often works, not under conditions of of anonymity, when when we know who's who the testifiers are, is that um, multiple testifiers to the same to the same piece of information uh, increases my as the receiver of the the multiple. Uh, bits of testimony increases my um, should increase my level of confidence in accepting what uh, they're testifying to. So convergence from multiple different testifiers seems to give me new epistemic reasons uh, uh, to embrace what's being testified to. Um, is that mitigated by anonymity? That is multiple anonymous sources. Does that um, does that change the epistemic story about the value of the convergence? Uh, it makes it more complicated. And bef- very, very briefly, uh, you, you mentioned this, but I just want to make clear the independence of the sources is crucial. If you right. get have a whole bunch of sources, obviously coming from one source, from one yeah. source, yeah. Then, yeah. then it doesn't do it. So what's interesting to my mind, and here I, I apologize, I, I need to speak as, a, as an epistemologist for a moment. Sure. Um, I tend to distinguish between two ways that one can receive testimony. And one way is the standard way, and that is to accept the testimony um, if you like, trust the person or take their word for it. Another one is to regard the testimony as mere evidence. And so I, I often thought if you're, suppose you were a journalist in a war zone and you know that in war zones, everybody has a vested interest in lying and making their side appear to be um, the side that is is the victim. You might nevertheless uh, get lots of pieces of testimony on um, that, that are testimony to the same the same truth. Um, and you might have good reasons to think that those testimonies are independent of one another, and you might use the fact that there are so many of them to conclude that they must be true. That's a different way of, re- of responding to, to testimony. It's to treat it as, as mere evidence. Mm. And if we could see our way to figuring out how to confirm in an anonymous case that these are both independent uh, and very unlikely to have been a testimony to the same proposition unless they were true, then I think you can probably run the same argument even under conditions of anonymity. The challenge will just be to confirm those independent things, namely that they're independent, sorry, that they're independent and that it's unlikely that they would all say the same thing if they were, if they were false. Well, Sandy, that's fascinating. Um, uh, and it's always nice to end on a on a philosophical high point because it's um, it's reassuring to know that um, we philosophers still have lots of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you for your time. It's been it's been great talking to you uh, on the Why We Argue podcast today. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate the opportunity. Sure, and thank you, uh, listener, for uh, checking out the podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project. 
uh, with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. Uh, you can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, at Public Humility. Thanks, and bye for now.